You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And today we're joined by a neon historian, graphic designer, urban anthropologist, Knott's Berry Farm historian. He's covering all of the bases. <laughs> Eric Linksweiler is with us today. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, you guys. It's good to see you. Nice to meet you. Yes, yes. nice to meet you as well. We've heard lots about you. Your friend Mandy sent you over to us and we've t- we talked about you in our last Patreon cocktail hour. And Jill and I were both just like, oh, my God. Who is this crazy person? We have to meet him. No, we're like, how have we not met him yet? (laughs) Well, there's lots of things we want to get to in your episode, but uh, specifically like Knott's Berry Farm and Neon, I'm so excited to dive into. And I, when I was in L.A. the last time, um, I was visiting my friend. She lived in downtown L.A. And we went on an L.A. walking tour. And it just changed my life, like looking at architecture yeah. and the the history of Los Angeles in itself. Just that entire area is so cool. So I'm excited yeah. to learn from somebody that really knows the ins and outs of it. So thank you. Well, I, I got started, uh, I think it was like 21, 22 years ago. Uh, I was walking along downtown Los Angeles's Broadway Theater District. I had never been through there. I was basically taking a shortcut to get from one freeway to another. And on my little paper map, it's like drive Broadway to (laughs) skip traffic. So I drove Broadway and I immediately was like, what is this wonderland of neon? I I basically lost my mind and was, I, I, I parked my car, grabbed my camera. I started taking pictures of all these historic movie theaters and the historic movie theaters had enormous neon marquees. Go figure. There was one dude there who was basically kind of like, to be perfectly honest, checking me out. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Hey little boy, you want to see inside my theater? <laughs> so I actually was like, I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why so, not? Why not? So uh, we exchanged phone number. I went inside and I was like jaw on the floor. I can't believe this historic place still exists. It's like, this is Hollywood of my dreams. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this was in my backyard in Los Angeles. I wound up volunteering for him and the friends of the Orpheum theater. <gasps> I, ch- I changed light bulbs. I cleaned. I was there for burlesque shows working the, 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 the stage door. I mean, I was having a lot of fun with this volunteer stuff and it just totally affected my life. I became a, an LA conservancy volunteer. I still give tours of the theaters. In fact, I'm giving a tour uh, this Wednesday night via zoom for the Los Angeles conservancy of the Los Angeles theater. So Los Angeles history is really a part of my heart. And uh, I now live on the edge of downtown Los Angeles. I'm walking distance to all of that stuff. It's, it is my backyard. Literally. It is. I I did not know you worked for the Conservancy, so that just made my heart grow like three times. <laughs> because volunteer, volunteer, uh, yeah. I, you know, being from where we're from, we're from Idaho, right? People have all types of stuff to say about downtown Los Angeles specifically. And the first time I was there, I was walking around waiting for the scary and waiting for the all of the stuff that you know people have this caricature. And I was walking around, and I was like, "This is." 
It's like its own little world inside of that huge city and people are nice and the culture is excellent and there's so many little shops. And then when I went on that conservancy tour and looked up and then we yeah. were outside of the Orpheum Theater and going to the Bradbury and all of that stuff and I'm looking at that marquee on that theater and I was like, holy shit, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. So that is, that's, uh, God bless you for doing that volunteer work because- it really then there's lots of things that they were trying to change in downtown Los Angeles the last time I was there to change it to look more modern and you know yeah that Broadway theater district thankfully it's it is somewhat sacred the LA Conservancy does keep a watchful eye on it it's one of the reasons why I'm a fan of the Conservancy is that they're proactive about all that mm -hmm. downtown Los Angeles uh, maintenance and preservation but also I celebrate the 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 downtown area by giving museum of neon art neon cruises through downtown los angeles so not only do we walk the streets in the morning with like a group of folks and go inside with the conservancy i also wind up uh jumping on board a convertible double-decker bus filling the top deck and cruising through los angeles and hollywood to be on eye level with those neon movie marquees wow so that you can see them eye to eye and really celebrate the neon flashing around you at night. It's, it's, it's miraculous. And Mandy has not done this yet. Oh, um, Mandy. Mandy has not taken that tour, but we'll get her on that bus. Shameful, Mandy. I'm disappointed. Your mom's <laughs> disappointed in you. <laughs> we'll talk about this in our next meeting. <laughs> this is going to come up on your performance <laughs> review. Well, she, and, she she will she will enjoy it. You, you, she'll share pictures, I'm sure. I hope I, so. She better. I can't wait to take that tour. Me too. Well, and so when I was younger, um, I lived in San Bernardino, and so um, I remember going to LA as a kid and all that kind of stuff, and everybody talking so bad about California. I'm like, what's wrong with California? Have Have you met the people in Idaho? Well, we like, know why the people seriously. in Idaho don't like them, and that's because they're Republican. I mean, it's not. I know I, it's so funny to me when people are like people from California moving to Idaho, and I'm like, "Thank God, <laughs> welcome! <laughs> I am your um, welcome committee. Yeah. I will pass out yeah. pamphlets. We will have cocktail hour. Thank you for coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. handshakes and short sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I want to so I want to back up a little bit from the neon stuff because I was reading over your questionnaire about your childhood. Are you from Los Angeles? Yeah, all my life. I've been a Southern California kid. So Hermosa Beach, Torrance, Redondo Beach, that's where I grew up. Wow. I mean, and yeah. you've really seen, a, I mean, just the change in the last 20 years in that area is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, and I'm living it because I'm one of those crazy idiot people who actually moved to live in downtown Los Angeles. Not not in the skyscrapers proper, mm -hmm. but on the on the edge in the arts district. Okay. Um I'm in my second law with my second husband and um, we are enjoying our space together, but we live in one of those, those awesome spaces that has no walls. Mm -hmm. So we can see all of our crap all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is no such thing as a closet to hide it in. It's mm -hmm. like, and there's another one. And another one. <laughs> yeah. My friend lived in the old bank district on a, in a corner oh. apartment. And the first time I walked in, it was just, I mean, like your ceiling is like the yeah. quintessential. Like it's that polished concrete and all of this and all of that. And I'm just like, I would sit like a fat house cat and look over <laughs> the city and just be like, look at all these people. Yeah, yes, We're yes. not in camp. And then I was, I had food poisoning during the women's march, so I couldn't participate, but I watched it 
from the city. And I remember hearing the commentary from back home and then I was watching it happen and I was like, you guys are so wrong. Like it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. Yeah. It was so cool. Anyways. So you grew up in that area and you started collecting from a really young age. Yeah. And that, (laughs) that's my life also. I'm the forever collector. Yeah, I mentioned my grandmother. My grandmother was a collector, and uh, she's the one who kind of inspired me, got me started. She had collection. And I know that my grandfather looked at these collections like, what's all this useless crap? (laughs) Thimbles and spoons and yadro and mice, and I don't know what this is. Grandma had a lot of collections, and she was happy to get me started on a collection. So uh, she bought me a little Haunted Mansion mini box, which I still have. And that set me down the path of a Disney collection. Uh, the Disney collection grew. It got, it got enormous, big. And then, you know, life changes. Mm-hmm. And I still have bits and pieces of that. But a lot of it, I flipped and wound up making a nickel on. Because it, I reached a point in my life where I said, you know, that collection doesn't necessarily represent me. Yeah. And I think I can probably use this to pay some rent. So let's put that on the market. <laughs> well, and and I, that's, oh, that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. I well I think that too that's a it's a it's a hard corner to get to in collecting because it's your first you have all these memories with it and you feel like a kinship with that collection. And I, it's a weird thing in the collecting community where you're like, well I can't sell it. It has all this history. Yeah. But when it's not yeah. serving you anymore, give it to somebody who's gonna or sell it to somebody that's going to enjoy it. I grew up with Absolutely. my grandmother was the collector and Yadros and porcelain and crystal and Wedgwood and all of yep. that stuff. And she was the one that like, I think they just want an excuse to like buy more shit for somebody else. Yeah. 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 That was me. And she, <laughs> she, she took me down that path and grandpa tried to introduce me to things like model railroading, which I carried for a while. Um, I had miniatures, I had stamps. Um, I joined a philatelist society when I was a little boy. And I was the the straight, the youngest person in this room of old white men <laughs> collecting, sharing stamp stories as if I had one. Uh, yeah, I did a lot of collecting when I was little. And that's really kind of honed down to a few important collections in my life. Mm-hmm. One, I collect neon. Like It's incredible. This <laughs> I know. I'm like just behind like, you. Oh, that's so cool. Is... It, it, there's so much neon in, in my home. I, I have to apologize to my husband because even he's kind of sick of it. And then we <laughs> light it up for then we light it up for parties, and he's like, "Oh, I get it. This is awesome." <laughs> he's like, "All right, all right, it's fine." Yeah, yeah. So was so, uh, did the neon? Sorry, Eric. It's this is the beauty of talking via <laughs> Google Meets. Um, so did the neon collection start with that fateful theater experience? Was that what where you were like, "Let's start getting some of this in the house." Kind of, sort of. At the same time, I was celebrating downtown Los Angeles and LA Conservancy. At the very same time, I joined the Museum of Neon Art, which was located in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, The Museum of Neon Art has been around since 1981, and I've now been with them for about 21, 22 years as a volunteer. Um, And actually, I'm president of the board of directors at this point after all these years. Nice job. Uh, But in order, but when I started collecting neon, it was it was a, a a situation where I swore I would not collect neon because I was saving neon for the Museum of Neon Art. Mm-hmm. Everything that I saved went to the Museum of Neon Art until I started saving things that they were saying no to. <laughs> <clears throat> so the collection just kind of began that way. And at that time, 
my grandma had a, a wonderful house in Torrance with a big backyard and a shed. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> let's just put this stuff in the shed. And uh, it was it was great for a while. We don't we don't have grandma's house. We don't have grandma anymore. And uh, a lot of that stuff has come and gone. But I've loaned pieces from my collection to the Museum of Neon Art. Um, I've displayed them in exhibitions here and there. And it's it's kind of like joy for the soul justifying. Mm -hmm. Why do I have this enormous thing that I dove into a dumpster <laughs> to pick out and save and then piece back together again with wiring and technicians and fixing the neon tubes? It's a lot of insanity. I mean, it is crazy that I save. <laughs> hang on. It is crazy that I save one ton rusty buckets of metal filled with bird crap and covered in broken glass. And yet I do it mm -hmm. because I know that the promise of what happens when you plug that thing in, it lights up and that glow just shoots right through my soul. It, 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 I, it, I've cried when I've seen neon relit. It's like that moment in that freaking movie cars yeah, when, when, when they just relight all the neon. I was crying in the theater because I know what that <laughs> feels like. That that is my religion right there is is saving these neon signs. So I have a collection because the organization I was collecting for said, "No, we don't have room for that. You take it." <laughs> like I'll just I'll store it and we'll just rotate it in and out. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I I know that when I when I pass on when whenever that happens is my collection of wacky neon has a home it's mm -hmm. going to go to the museum I, I i know i could probably just sign it over right now but i kind of want to hold on to it at this point yeah. it's joyful it's joyful that's one of the things we constantly remind people of with this show is like your collection can be anything as long as it does just that if it lights your soul on fire and you feel just total glee then collect it then keep it it doesn't have to be worth tons of money it doesn't even have to be notable but if it yeah. does that that's the important part of it yeah and yeah. i want to know like the history of neon in los angeles when did that start there neon came to los angeles in the early 1920s uh for the longest time there was the story that los angeles was the american birthplace of neon and I told that story for years and years on my neon cruises of L.A., that L.A. was the birthplace of American neon. And a tiny bit of research, we found out that wasn't true at all. It actually started uh, in New York City. It, it, it came without uh, fanfare. It just kind of trickled in, following on the footsteps of incandescent advertising. But neon did blossom in Los Angeles because Los Angeles was growing at the same time as uh neon's birth so throughout the 1920s los angeles was spreading horizontally across the landscape with businesses 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 and in order to become be perceived as modern uh that business had to have a neon sign even if they had an incandescent sign at one time they had to change it and be neon after a while in order to be considered with it and today in 1920 standards so neon was everywhere like a business in Los Angeles would have neon on a sign above the door, in the window, on the rooftop, in the parking lot, uh, facing the backyard. They would have an arrow, and then they would have all of these others. It was it, neon was everywhere, uh, and that's something that I have, have tried to save over the years. Uh, we've lost 
enormous amounts. We'll never know what we've lost, but uh, through the Museum of Neon Art, I've worked to save uh, what little neon I can around Southern California. But, you know, I reach out to other communities all the way to um, even New York City in order to try and save a neon sign and then convince them to ship it to L.A. (laughs) Uh, Nice job. Just because, just to see if it would happen. Yeah. But, you know, for a man who dumpster dives, I will take the risk and and attempt to save a neon sign in Wichita or New Orleans. Just mm-hmm. because. And I, I was, I, you know, you become cognizant of things when you speak to people. When I read your email, I had gone to the car wash and it's right next to a sign making shop right here in Ooh. town. And I drove past and it had the old Jamba Juice sign that I had grown up seeing was laying on railroad ties. And my wow. heart has never broke for a sign before. And then I went, oh, because even it's yeah. those things that don't seem like an important part of history that eventually become. I There's a couple of great neon signs in our town. And the one that instantly comes to mind is this like 30 foot tall evergreen that was for the evergreen roadside hotel or motel. And they're all like these A frame like. Well, in their heyday, they were very kitschy and very cute. And it had this huge evergreen sign that said vacancy or no vacancy. And it was all lit up. And then there was downtown at the Stardust. Oh, yeah. There was the cowgirl that had a rope. And she was in a skirt and boots. And she would rope. And then it had a sign above it that was not necessarily neon, but the metal signs with the little circle lights that said bar. Like those uh-huh. kinds of things. Yeah. And they the, they saved that, but I and the I don't I think I don't know where the cowgirl is. Never, yeah, I don't. I'll know have to ask to. Eric and see. But it's those types of things that I think really tell the story of a town in the best yeah. way, because it was what was in vogue, and it was the colors. And then when did moving neon come into the picture? Of well, like, almost immediately, <clears throat> almost immediately. I mean, uh, before there was neon signage there was incandescent light bulb signage so for example downtown los angeles uh the great white way in new york city had enormous billboards but they were all little points of light it was pointillist design and you would have an eagle that would flap its wings you would have a beer that would tip and pour and this was all done with the magic of flying light bulbs they would just turn off and on in order to create an animated scene so once we reach the world of neon, you could do even more with neon. So that instead of just having light bulbs represent feathers in an eagle, they would have uh, individual golden tubes uh, bent and woven to, to be individual feathers wow. in, that, in those flapping wings. You could get a, a lot more detail. Uh, you could have a, a character wink its eye far more easily with just like an on-off switch. We have one neon sign in the museum's collection that came from uh, Oakland, California, and it's a Hofbrau bartender. He's fancy. He is incredibly fancy. I I have to share photos of that with you because Please. he he animates in such a way that his arm is on a tap. He pulls it down, and his beer fills up. Boop 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 boop, oh. and then and then it and then it foams. <clears throat> Meanwhile, wow. his bartender, who's blonde haired, blue eyed, red lips yellow yellow side chops uh he he turns his head and he smiles in the biggest smile he's he's insane it's crazy that that this was ever created he dates to probably the 1930s heavily heavily detailed and we are very grateful to have him in the collection does he work entirely not really (laughs) 
but we do have him. The, the big deal about that particular sign is that he's a recycled sign. So underneath that 1930 sign, in the middle of it is a 1920 sign that, oh. that we, we can't take it apart and see what it is because it's all one giant welded unit. Uh, but wow. that also means that we can't get in there in order to like do the wiring because there's another sign in the way. We can't get to it. Oh my oh God. My. It's like these neon the, fossils. <laughs> in neon fossils. But these are the signs that we say we, this was going to go into the trash. We, it's like, how, why? And the more uh, we, we peeled back the layers, the more we were like, this is an incredible piece of cultural history and technical marvel yeah. because we have it and we can't even entirely fix it because that handmade technology of the 20s, 30s, 40s, which has not changed today, same technology, but we don't have all the right talented people to put those pieces back together. It's the same bending. It's the same gas, glass, the same electricity. It's completely lo-fi, no computer needed. It's just science. That's it. It's science and art combined. Uh, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to say is that it takes talent to make these things. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to learn. You have to apprentice for many, many years in order to learn how to bend glass over an open flame. And the folks that do it, I cherish. And the Museum of Neon Art, we're, we have a classroom at our Glendale location where we're trying to find and teach that next generation of vendors mm. because we don't want this craft to die. It's, it's, it's all made by hand. Every neon sign you have ever seen in your life, even those open beer Budweiser signs, were all made by hand. You cannot make this by machine or computer. So again, that's something that we have to celebrate. It's really an art form. It's, I saw that I was looking at the Mona today and I was like, they have a class. I would fly in just to take that class. <laughs> in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Because it is, I mean, each piece of neon is sculptural art. And yeah. I, I didn't realize that it wasn't made by machine, at least now. You know, yeah. we've we've automated so much of our lives mm -hmm. that the fact that it's still made by hand is just. And then I think of some of the big signs in like Vegas or even L.A. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, I know it's like <laughs> <laughs> you get a whole heart. <laughs> oh my heart god! Just I just yeah. imagine like forty five people holding this tiny tube of glass. <laughs> be like, don't I swear to God, Jim, if you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then think about all the men and the women who stood in there and bent the stuff. I mean. Uh, in, in its heyday, every city had neon sign shop, neon sign shop, neon sign shop. Often somebody would apprentice here and then go and open their own neon sign shop. Nobody, unfortunately, signed their work. All of these great tubes, all of these great signs, maybe we'll find a company manufacturing tag, maybe. Wow. But all of the men and, men and women who put this thing together, who designed it, who executed it, built it structurally, then bent all the tubes and maintained it for years, never sign their work. So we don't know the names behind these art pieces. And that's really frustrating. Oh, that's so unfortunate. But then imagine, for example, those giant neon signs in Las Vegas or an enormous billboard here in my own backyard of Los Angeles. Uh, somebody has to climb up the face of this glass facade of a sign with a neon tube in their right hand and then wires in their left while they're in a Botswan chair swinging freely in the breeze and somehow have to get this thing in there, then wire it all up. It's a talent. It's a horrifying talent. 
And yet there are people who still do this all over the United States. There, there's one folk, one guy I met in San Francisco's Bay Area, and that's what he does. He hangs, he hangs from a chair or he has to be that guy like there's not a scaffold in front of the sign. So he has to stand behind this rust bucket, oh, sweet. reach, reach, reach in front of it and do everything blindly from the back. Oh, yeah. holy. Yeah. No. <laughs> in order to change out <laughs> neon tubes. It, it's something that I cherish and I now understand. Now you do too. Oh my God. Yes. I am never going to bitch about my job ever I again. I know. It's, it's horrifying to see videos of him changing light bulbs and neon tubes. I'm like, I don't know how you have the cojones to do this. This is horrifying. Oh. And yet he does it with glee. He, he, and he's one of the last. He's a survivor. That's oh. incredible. For for the, the neon novices, what goes inside of the glass uh, tubes to make them work? Neon needs uh, one of the five uh, noble glasses. Noble gases. <clears throat> gases. There, there are five noble gases. Uh, that's neon argon, xenon, krypton, and helium. Those are the five gases. You could basically pluck it out of the earth, distill it from the air. It's, it's in everything that we breathe. It is a, a normal natural gas that is on the, um, the scientific charts, that thing. Um, of those five gases, only two of them light up bright enough to be seen as sign for signage. So that would be neon, which was the first of the noble gases to be discovered. It's bright ruby red. And then there's argon, which is a, a very cool blue. But if you add just a touch of mercury to that blue, then it lights up even brighter. So that's the base of every sign that you have ever seen on the streets of Idaho, California, or Washington, D.C. It is a red and it's a blue. So add to those two base colors uh, phosphor. You could do a phosphor coating on your glass and the phosphor will react. And that will make it um, shine shine in a different color through the glass. Uh, you could also do colored glass. So you could have a, a ruby red gas, but you could put the ruby red gas in a ruby red glass and make it even more red. Oh, wow. And you can also weld these colors together so that for something like this guy, <clears throat> there's a cherry with a stem, a cherry with a stem. And that's all one tube, but you can see it has two colors in it. Mm -hmm. That's two different colors of two different colors of glass with one gas inside. So that one gas glows, but creates two colors in a stem. Now imagine my brain just blew up. Now imagine, for example, we have a Spanish dancer in our collection. The Spanish dancer, she has uh, an arm which is like a light pink. And it connects to her neck, which is a pink. And then it makes her lip, which is a ruby red. Then it goes to become her nose and her eyes, which are blue. And that's and then it, I think it becomes like her Spanish comb and her hair. It's all one tube with multiple colors that the artist not only had to bend, but then weld this colored glass to that colored glass to that colored glass in order to make this fantastic scene. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Holy, <laughs> my brain is melting, literally. Like, like It's funny, too, because you figure something like that is what they do, but the detail behind it is just... I, I never even thought yeah. to even think about it. And, like, I work yeah. with color theory all the time in my job as a hairdresser. So, like, 
seeing how the different colored glass, you mean you can make infinite colors if you have the right yeah. pigment in the glass. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Wow. And, and that's, that's, that's why the American roadside is so attractive. All of these bright, shiny colors in the distance We're we're driving along in our giant sedan. And then in the darkness of uh, the American roadside is like this little pinpoint of light. And we like moths just drive straight to it in order to uh, have coffee, booze, or go to the bathroom. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's always a need with those neon signs. And I will seek out mom and pops as I travel the nation in order to say, hey, I'm pulling over because your liquor store has an awesome neon sign and I am buying this, this, and this wow. because you have an awesome neon sign. This makes me want to take pictures of neon and send it to you for your collection <laughs> from here. <laughs> I just... Uh, uh, my appreciation just grew like seven times for that. And to, for this artwork and this skill to come from the dawn of industrial revolution, like in the twenties and thirties mm -hmm. to go from art nouveau to art deco to then this. Yeah. The science goes back to the 1800s, the science of it. We, we know that it existed back in the 1800s as a novelty item, mm -hmm. but it didn't, it didn't hit the streets of, uh, France, New York, and Los Angeles until the 20s, really, as an advertising medium. For a while, it was uh, architectural illumination. Uh, it, it, it eventually became signage with like, a, I think the first one was like a Cinzano sign in Paris. Uh, they decorated the side of the Eiffel Tower with uh, neon, I believe. Wow. But once it hit the United States, it was a full-on advertising form. And that was it. It was just advertising. Perhaps you could use it in a, a storefront to light your window display, but it was a it was a cold. Well, to me, it's it to me it's a warm light. Mm -hmm. But once you're like trying to read underneath a neon sign, it's not uh, it's not a a good enough for interior illumination, mm -hmm. which is why it just became perfect for outdoor advertising. You can bend those neon tubes into whatever you want. Honestly, whatever your imagination wishes, you can make that into a neon something, a yeah. blurb, a doodle, uh, a dog wagging its tail, a skunk wagging its tail. I've seen, I've seen it all. Well, I've seen almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have this awful joke when I'm on the neon cruises. It's like, yes, I have seen every type of neon sign ever made. I've seen every design. I've seen it all except for a school of the blind sign or a, uh, uh, a gynecologist. I've never seen a gynecologist <laughs> Please, somebody make that. And one day, one day, I'm making the neon speculum. So yes, can, <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. And do the. There's somebody that made this. Don't tread on me, uterus for Texas. Oh yes, yeah. Yes. yes. Let's make that into a neon sign, yes. please. Yes, we have a neon uterus floating over Sunset Boulevard right now as an art piece. Believe it or not, it's we have one here. Wow, somebody. God damn it. Well, there to go. Somebody already did it. Never mind. Yep. Cancel the it show. Happened. Cancel it. When did so I've noticed in some houses, like around where we live, that some houses are lined with neon. Oh. As an architectural design like on the, the edges of the house. Okay. Yeah. When did that start? As was that like fifties, sixties? No, I, I really don't think so. I mean, I, every neighborhood is different. Perhaps that neighborhood has a story that I don't know about. But mm -hmm. when when I saw neon 
uh, hitting residential areas. It was the 1980s. Well, that makes sense. That's when I saw it happen because uh, neon had a resurgence in the 80s. It was there was a couple things that were going on. First of all, neon neon comes and goes in popularity over the years. The neon of the 1920s and 30s, which was so new and fresh, became your grandpa's technology by the 50s, mm. and neon kind of like hit a down uh, a downward bend, especially if you look at neon noir movies, mm-hmm. neon flashing outside that motel window was ominous and negative. It was no longer a, a happy, buoyant, positive, we're going to the stork club in the 20s. So neon comes and goes in its uh, joy and happiness, I guess. So by the time the 1960s, 70s came around, it was on a, a very downward bend. And then it got rediscovered in the 1980s. It was uh, fashionistas, designers, those Melrose-type people. Uh, Suddenly, we could dye clothing in day-glow neon colors. So watch your Wham! videos, and you could see all of the day-glow colors that were popping up in lipstick and eyeliner. And that also translated to art and fashion. So Mm -hmm. artwork, we had neon artwork popping up everywhere. The Museum of Neon Art was founded in 1981, kind of riding this wave. And people started putting neon in and on their homes. It was it was like there was a resurgence. People were bending neon all over again and having their house numbers lit up with neon or their doorways or their windows or even putting it in their kitchens as, well, creative artwork on the ceiling. Mm. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I don't know about those homes from the 50s. I would love to see that. But I know that there was a, a residential resurgence of neon in the 80s. And I still see it today driving around Los Angeles. I'm like double tape, purple glow in the dark darkness of a residential area. And somebody has their house numbers in a beautiful purple. Who knows? That's cool. Ideas. I know. I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> it's, well, it's easy. It's easy. You could do it. It's uh, it's just very cool. And I, I could spend an entire hour talking about neon. But I also want to talk about something I know literally nothing about as an Idahoan which is Knott's Berry Farm. I have oh. I have never been to Knott's Berry Farm. I've never been to Disneyland. So I've been to Knott's Berry Farm because we used to go all the time. So anytime somebody's like, what's Knott's Berry Farm? I'm like, how do you not know this? You poor yes. child. You poor child. You've been deprived. I have been. <laughs> I have been very deprived. So while I would love to talk 800 years more about Neon, <laughs> I really also want to know about your connection to Knott's Berry and where that started for you. That is a piece of my childhood. Uh, it goes way, way back. I mean, even the roots of Neon in my life go way, way back. Um, we would do childhood summertime trips uh, to go to Knott's Berry Farm. Basically, uh, I, I had summer school and every Wednesday in summer school was the field trip day. Oh. So it was it, living in Southern California. We had everything. We had wax museums. We had the Griffith Observatory. We had all Ferris streets. Uh, we saw puppet shows at Bob Baker Marionette Theater and uh, Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm, Universal Studios, Magic Mountain. That was my that was my childhood. So Knott's Berry Farm is a part of my youth. Uh, I would always buy souvenirs there and then treasure those teeny tiny souvenir memories, which I still have today. <laughs> uh, and, and Knott's Berry Farm just kind of grew on me. When I reached a certain age and I'm like, I can get a job now and pay for this automobile, um, I wound up working at Knott's Berry Farm. And in the early 1990s, Knott's Berry Farm was still family owned. So I would be working the shooting gallery in my cowboy costume. Uh, and there would go walking past one of the not family members. And I just kind of like get goosebumps and go, they're like Orange County royalty. They they are the people who made all of this happen. And they're 
brilliant millionaires. Well, I, I never got to really shake their hands until later. But um, because of that, walking around not seeing it behind the scenes, uh, finding out that there is a real history here, and then digging to find out what that history was, it inspired me to collect and study Knott's Berry Farm, just as I have studied and collected Los Angeles and Neon. Well, I focused on Knott's Berry Farm and then the Angel City Press, uh, which was my my book publisher for other books that we will talk about another day. Um, <laughs> Uh, they said, hey, this guy, Chris Merritt, he he wants to do a book on Knott's Berry Farm. And I said, that's great. It has to happen. It has to happen because the story has not been written. The truth is out there. There's too many fairy tales and fiction stories that we have to tell the real story about a mom and a dad and four kids who came to Buena Park, California to build a farm. And that farm magically turned into a theme park. There were a lot of steps along the way that people don't understand or appreciate lots of little trial and error things that might actually still be there on farm. Mm. Some of these little things from the 20s and 30s are still there today. Anyway, Chris Merritt put together this beautiful book. I worked on this book with him. We, were, we became co-authors and, and put the book together. And this history of Knott's Berry Farm, thankfully, and I will say this uh, very truthfully, kind of changed the face of Knott's today because Knott's family sold the park to a new uh, ownership, corporate ownership, which is Cedar Fair based in Idaho. Uh, Cedar Fair in Idaho owns Knott's Berry Farm. But at the time, the late 90s, they didn't know what they had. It was just a few roller coasters and all the history didn't matter. Mm. They kind of started throwing it away. They threw it away. Um, And then we came out with this book. And the folks at Knott's Berry Farm looked at the book, Knott's Preserved, and they read it, mailed it to the folks in Ohio who went, oh, there, there's something here. Eventually, and it, it has taken time, they've realized that their history is marketable. Mm. Their history is savable. Uh, I've, I've worked hard to get some of that history sent to the Orange County archives in Orange County so that uh, not all of that story has been lost. Um, I know that a lot of my personal collection, which I have purchased, saved, and scavenged over the years. It's probably going to go to the Orange County Archives again one day, too. But at this point in time, Knott's Berry Farm is finally celebrating its 100th anniversary. Wow. Uh, as, as a gigantic Southern California foundation uh, that inspired Walt Disney to build Disneyland, for example, and also inspired lots of themed attractions all over the globe. To be mm-hmm. honest, uh, we wouldn't have a Splash Mountain if it wasn't for Knott's Berry Farm because Bud Hurlbut built a log ride. We wouldn't have Thunder Mountain at Disneyland because Bud Hurlbut built the Calico Mine Ride at Knott's Berry Farm. There's a lot, a lot going on. I mean, even I just keep naming Disney rides, but <laughs> that's what people, that's what people know. I, I just, I just kind of want to explain that the roots of what you see at that very popular park down the road. They got their inspiration from a popular park that I grew up in, which is Knott's Berry Farm. So my heart goes out to Knott's. It, it really is another one of those places of joy. Mm. Brings a tear to my eye. Uh, thankfully, it's just reopened post-COVID, and I can go and uh, eat and celebrate, ride historic stagecoaches, and uh, ride Colorado Railroad trains from the 1800s, and experience real Western history mixed in with the uh, the fantasy of a frontier village. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I can't I can't undo my my heart from loving Ghost Town and Knott's Berry Farm. 
Yeah. I, you are bringing up so many memories for me. As I like, hey. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Yes. I loved Knott's Berry Farm and my cousins and aunties go still and like, they'll send pictures. I'm like, I want to be there. I remember yes. writing that. <laughs> yeah. And the fried chicken and the boysenberries. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, the boysenberries. Mm. Yeah. They have a boysenberry festival nowadays, which oh. I which I actually worked for them at, at a time when they were creating the Boysenberry Festival. And they did a lot of uh, design work uh, to, to help with the Boysenberry Festival. I, yeah, I'm, I'm in there. I, it's the scary part is even though I don't work for them as an employee, I work for them as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. So I still have a hand in Knott's Berry Farm. And I designed a lot of their food labels for them. So all of those jars of jams, jellies, preserves, even the uh, the dressing and the meat relish labels. Yes, I, I designed all of <laughs> That's those. That's so cool. Well, and he does it's, this. It's wonderful. He pulls from old imagery. He wrote in his questionnaire that he looks over all the history of knots that he has. And he goes, oh, this is great. And this is great. And you're the the sites that you sent me to look over your collection of just even like ephemera and advertising i my mouth was on the floor because i love paper ephemera i love old advertising yeah and what uh what a great like you have the coolest like woven connection into two very much californian and like u.s history in a sense of like la is is, i mean it's either la or new york you know where do people want to go and the fact that you know so much of the backside of those two things is incredible. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. You're, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Let me just slide it. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> I, you're right. I've said that you, you can't, I, I cannot imagine Los Angeles without Neon. Mm-mm. And there is no Los Angeles, Southern California without Knott's Berry Farm. So I'm happy to have a foot in the door for both of those uh, those historical pieces of los angeles that they, they, they mean a lot to me and i i spread that joy and education for people like uh with you two <laughs> as we uh share the knowledge of uh, neon and knott's berry farm in order to make the other people appreciate it wherever they go yeah well it corrects me if i'm wrong knott's berry farm started the first commercial boysenberry farm in the united states right absolutely true that's well, crazy Walter Knott did not invent the boysenberry. That was Rudolph Boysen. Uh, Rudolph Boysen tried to create this berry uh, by, by merging three berries, and he abandoned it. He couldn't figure out how to market it. He tried it. It failed. He abandoned it. Long story short, Walter Knott got his hands on some scraggly vines, <laughs> and with Rudolph Boysen's permission, named these vines after Rudolph and just gave them a shot. This is about 1932. It took two years to propagate those vines and create enough vines and berries to then sell them commercially. So it was in 1934 that Walter Knott brought the boysenberry to the table commercially. And it all came out of Southern California. Every boysenberry that you've ever eaten has come out of Knott's Berry Farm. And I know there are people out there who say, oh, but I'm sure somebody had a plant here or there. And I'm like, yeah, but Walter Knott gave us the boysenberry. (laughs) He's the one that sold the dang thing. He's the one that actually uh, survived the Great Depression by by selling these boysenberries, but also sharing it. He sold the rootstock to other farmers across the nation so they could have the boysenberry and they could have this wonderful, joyous, gigantic sweet tart berry to save their farms. Wow. It's like asparagus growing. You have to wait to enjoy it. 
Now I want some boys and berries. So is a boys is it a mix of a raspberry, a blueberry, is it, and a blackberry? It's a, a raspberry, a blackberry, and a loganberry, I believe. Oh. Raspberry, blackberry, loganberry. I did, and then the, hear that his last three. name was Boysen. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's early in the morning for me. I hope those three berries are correct. But that's that's what Rudolph Boysen. We'll did. check it. And, uh, yeah, Rudolph Boysen was uh, he he was a he was a great fellow, but he didn't make a dime off the Boysenberry. He didn't make any any money at all. It all went to Walter Knott. Oh, he's probably he was got, so pissed about that. He got it all. Uh, yeah, but Walter, at the very same time, he was building up the boysenberry. I mean, it was 1934 he brought us the boysenberry. At the very same time, in order to fight the Great Depression, Cordelia started serving fried chicken dinners on her wedding china at the Knott's Berry Place Tea Room. So basically, they had a little house in back. They started. They bought a few of their acres. They had a little house in back, and in front, they had a berry market, which still stands from 1928. The berry market is where they sold all of their fresh produce, whatever Cordelia was canning or turning into tarts. So Walter had the berry. She had a tea room where she served sandwiches, put that first plate of fried chicken down in 1934, and it just kind of like spread. It exponentially word spread. Best fried chicken in all of Southern California. So it grew from like four four card tables to a Mm -hmm. dining room to another dining room. Eventually, Knott's Berry Farm was serving 10,000 people every day. Whoa. It, uh, yeah. And the Knott's Berry Farm grew because of food. It was a boysenberry. It was a fried chicken. I'm getting hungry. I am too. Mm-hmm. I want chicken. And yeah. I, all right. We're going to go to Albertson's. <laughs> get some fried no, chicken. we're going to take a trip. I'm going to take you to Knott's Berry oh, Farm. Okay. We'll have fried chicken. Well, please. Yeah, that, it, you can't avoid it. I mean, uh, they put boysenberries in everything nowadays for the uh, boysenberry festival. And that fried chicken recipe has only changed in one tiny way, according to uh, the family, the not family. And that's uh, they no longer cook with lard. Oh, that's the, that was the one difference. So uh, the fried chicken is still just as sim- it's simple, simple as can be. There's no seasoning. It's just uh, brine, salt water, fresh mm. chicken. And then flour and fried. It's as simple as can be, and so good. Well, she she couldn't have made it with anything crazy because it was the depression. She didn't have shit. Exactly. She was just like, "This is what we got. Deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Either like it or don't. That's I don't care. Yeah, kick rocks. That's it. Do you and know you only because of my little brain? Do you know what China it was that she served it from? Oh, I have it. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it, I don't have her China, but I have since collected Hudson. It's a it's a form of Hudson China. And uh, yeah, I've, I've actually tracked it down through friends. I was able to figure out what pattern it was, and I bought a whole bunch of it. And that has come in handy because I work to uh, do the art photography and design and then edit the Knott's Berry Farm cookbook. And it was important to me that we plate that, that food mm-hmm. on the right plates. It had to be the right plates. I so just, when we did the, <laughs> I'm just gonna clap for that you, attention to I, detail. I, I bring the history forward. I, I I want those details to come out. So when you're you're looking at the photography with the recipe on one side, the photo of the chicken noodle soup on the other, it is in the proper terrain. <laughs> Jim's yeah. gonna just die. That today was like, <laughs> I'm oh, buying the cookbook. Oh, what are we talking? Yeah, about? yeah you I'm need the, the cookbook, cookbook for sure. Wow, <laughs> what was the what's the pattern stop, name um, of the? Hudson. Uh, uh, it is it is a Hudson, but I can't. It's actually one of those mass-produced ones. When, remember when Walter and Cordelia were married in 1911? Oh wow! Uh, 
they were they were broke. They were poor. They didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of money. So their wedding china was pretty low brow. Uh, it, it's a, a Hudson, but it's just like a numerical code. Oh, wow. I can't say that it has a fancy name, but there were there was plenty of it. And of the survivors, there's like a a coffee pot, um, a sugar, and a creamer. Wow. That have, that have survived at Knott's Berry Farm, and they're at the chicken dinner restaurant on display, um, as well as a, a water pitcher. And that water pitcher was a wedding gift as well, and that's at the chicken dinner restaurant on display. We also did use that in the in the cookbook, wow. just because it was there and we wanted to celebrate the history. So, yes, thank you for asking. I do have all that stuff. God, that's so cool. <laughs> that's that's so cool. I love it. I love it so much. I grew up thinking that everybody had fine china in their house. And like I was, we always say this thing at the end of every show, check under the tables. And we went to an estate sale with one of our dear friends that runs it. She's become a dear friend of the show. And she said to us, she said the catchphrase to me when I got there, Linda did. She goes, check under the tables. And I looked at her, I said, do you know where that comes from, right? And she looks at me, oh, where? And I said, from your sale, when I found my 16 person place setting of china under a table. And she was like huh <laughs> like, yeah that's why we that's say why that because I, I i bought the platter and didn't realize the rest of the set was under the table wow that's wonderful i i had the same experience my my husband uh has dr- started dragging me to um and I, I say dragging because i'm like we have stuff we have stuff <laughs> good he job husband mm-hmm. a, <laughs> started dragging me to estate sales and the one that i bless him for is is the bud hurlbut estate sale bud hurlbut was the the man who helped turned Knott's Berry Farm from a roadside amusement into a world-class theme park by designing and giving us things like the Calico Mine Ride, the Timber Mountain Log Ride, groundbreaking attractions. He reached a certain age, passed away, and I'm like, I'm too close to this subject. I don't want to see people rummaging through this man's mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. I knew him. I know him. I can't deal with scavengers. That's how I thought about it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, nope, we're going. Drag me. We went. And I found a few little items that were precious, things like a postcard that had meaning to me. And then we checked out, walked out, and went, wait, there's a second floor? I didn't know there was a staircase right here. <sighs> so we wound up going upstairs, and his wife had passed previously. They, they, there were no clothes. I would have gone for all of his clothes, any of his clothes. There were only a few pieces of her clothing left that nobody cared about. So I just went through them and went, that's one of Bud Hurlbut's neckties. Oh, my gosh. And it, it's his signature. He had a Colonel Sanders necktie, and he wore it with a white shirt every day of his life. And I, I was like, oh, my God, goosebumps. I have, I have to. I, and I was like, this is one of the most precious things that I own because it's so completely personal to the man. Mm-hmm. And it's in a drawer over there because it's, it, it's like, okay, this is, this is it. I now have a piece of a man that I idolize. Mm-hmm. And it's from that one look under the table had to find it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. That's those are those I think are the most meaningful and like worth like monetarily wise. Like to me is something in my collection that somebody would just glance over because they don't know the story behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then yeah. when I go, oh, do you know what this is? Like yeah. I kept when my grandpa died, I kept his coffee cup. Like that was the one thing I wanted his coffee cup. And so when people are over it and they go to get coffee, I went, no, not you can't have that cup. I'm sorry. Put that back, please. Not even my husband yeah. can use it. It yep. is a only my cup. And I wanted to talk about too, you and your honey did COVID antiquing, yes, yes. which I love that you guys just <laughs> set a dot in the map and went to go look at stuff. We, we decided after we kind of got over the fear of stepping outside of our door, mm-hmm. 
that we would feel very safe if we just hopped in a car and drove in a round trip. We could do 100 miles there, 100 miles back. We kind of like looked at the Los Angeles map and went 100 miles gives us a lot of leeway for a one day trip, no overnight to go hit every single antique mall in all of Southern California. <laughs> and, and we pretty much did. We went to every antique mall in Southern California because they were open. There was nobody there. Yeah, uh, They were viable businesses. They were allowed to be open. And we went and spent a nickel or two <laughs> and <clears throat> wound up buying some awesome stuff. We really did. We had a lot of fun. And it, it was an escape because otherwise mm-hmm. we live in a loft with no walls and could easily kill one another. Yes. So yeah. we needed an escape to go look at New Horizons and uh, split up in an antique mall and then meet up and go, what'd you find? Ugh. Yeah. It was it was a lot of fun and a great survival kit for COVID. Yeah. What does Darren collect? Darren is a very uh, unique guy. He's a specialist in Norma Shearer Hollywood. So if you don't know the actress Norma Shearer, she was the star of Marie Antoinette and The Women. Wow. She has lots of movies to her name. And Darren started collecting on her when he was a teenager. In a, a, like, uh, I think he might have even been in uh, middle school when he started collecting. So his collection is posters, photographs, letters, ephemera, even some pieces of clothing from Norma's life. He's planning on writing the book after all these decades of collecting. Uh, But if you ask my husband a question about old Hollywood, he knows the answer. He's just kind of amazing. We will rummage through old movie photographs, unidentifiable movie photographs. And I'm just flipping, looking at old pictures of old Los Angeles. And then I pull something out and he's like, that's Mickey Rooney at three years old, unidentified, grabs it. <laughs> and he, wow. he'll, he'll, he can spot the actors and actresses without without a name. He is that good. Is and he then, also and from Los Angeles? He grew up in Santa Monica, Southern California, with a little bit of time in Bakersfield. But he's he is a Southern California boy as well. Yeah. Wow. And um, I think it's a really good match. Unfortunately, it's two collectors together. <laughs> but <laughs> mm-hmm. It works. Mm-hmm. We have a hell of a playhouse up here. People, yeah. people come up here and then they're like, wow, what is this weird wonderland of crap that you live in? <laughs> because, you know, scattered amongst the rest of it, we also have tiki because one day I will have a tiki bar. Oh, mm-hmm. me too. Mm-hmm. One day. We're so working on building Jill's collection. Yes. Yep. Every yep. time I see something out in the wild that vaguely resembles Hawaii, I'm like, here you go. Here you go. Yeah, yeah. You got it. You got it. So yeah. I, I, I've... I'm surrounded by some tiki gods here and there that <laughs> that I cherish. <clears throat> and then we have, uh, you know, strange light fixtures and cred- Danish modern credenzas and mm-hmm. whatever. It's the way it is. I don't know if you can live in Southern California without having Danish modern somewhere in your house. I think that it's I know it's a prerequisite. They hand it to you with your keys when you sign <laughs> your lease. They and that's here. actually... Uh, that's actually an inspiration from my grandmother because she had Danish modern in her, her house in Torrance. So I have some of my grandmother's Danish modern furniture uh, today with a few extras thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's how, it ha- especially if you're like, if your grandparents lock onto you as being like the historian type, they're just like, come with me, child. Let me tell you about all the things that I collect and why I have them. And yeah, yeah. How they and gra- grandma and grandpa, grandma and grandpa did get to see that side when I was with the Museum of Neon Art and curating shows and showing off neon and and uh, grandma and grandpa got to see that that side of me and they also got to see me or grandma got to see me lecture on Knott's Berry Farm history and promotion of the Knott's Berry Farm book so they I, I owe a lot of who I am to grandma and grandpa they they were 
they were mom and dad to me in many ways and uh, still inspire me to this day. So I know how much that coffee mug means to you. Yeah. There's these little things that are just a part of a part of us, whether it's physical or whether it's inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it means a lot. And that's the whole reason for this entire show. It's a- antiques and vintage and everything aside. I, when my grandpa died, I was devastated that I didn't get a chance to hear any more of his stories, any more of his history, any more of those things. And the internet, let's face it, everything that's on the internet is going to be around forever. So in 50 years, 60 years, when this show is along in the dust and people are going, they're doing obituaries for their family members and they type somebody's name in and our show comes up. What a beautiful thing for them to have at some point in history a tangible dialogue of uh, their person at that time, mm-hmm. their prophecy. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, adding to that craziness, I am also, my husband and I are also those people who find uh, <clears throat> photo albums at estate sales. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, we bring those people back to life. We actually like find out the names of these folks and put them up on the internet. I've tracked down folks for, for just like, you know, piles of old, boring photographs mm-hmm. you flip through all these black and whites of anonymous people i found out who some of them are and wow. i put them up on the internet and then linked to their websites uh for their uh for their cemetery plot for wow. example so not that any family member has ever reached out to say who the hell are you and why are you posting photos of grandpa no mm-hmm. it's never happened it's just that i feel like i found a little piece of a puzzle that was lost in a pile mm-hmm. and i just put it out there on the internet for somebody to discover who this who this man, who this woman was way back when, when they were working at Lockheed or farming in the Midwest. And here's that photograph that somebody missed, but I feel like I put that puzzle piece back into place. And it, as somebody who has started where we're from, there's lots of family history and genealogy that's done already because of the presence of the LDS church here. But my family on my grandpa's side is like, from Sweden to the 1600s. And so when I see pictures of family that I would have never known, I'm like, oh my God, like that. It's, it's so bless you for doing that. Cause it's really, I buy old photographs only because I'm like, these can't go into the trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. yeah. Like I just bought two um, solar enlargement pictures at an estate sale in an auction. And they are from one is a woman sitting it's like from the 1860s and the other one i'm lovingly referring to them as the terror twins because they look like nightmare city (laughs) and it's these two twins they're hand colored solar enlargements and it's these two kids a son a boy and a girl holding hands but they're just their eyes are dead (laughs) but i was like how these can't and it's in the what the original frame one of them is but i was like i got them both for five dollars and they were probably just going to be thrown away I can give you a story too. Uh, over COVID, we started hitting outdoor swap meets because it's a, it's so comfortable. It's outdoors. Why mm-hmm. not? Outdoor swap meet. And I'm going through all these little photographs and I freak out because there's a teeny tiny photograph of a car buried in mud. No big deal. It's just like car got caught in a mud flood. Fine. But in the background was a California crazy building that was located in Santa Monica. And I knew it. There's this little tiny building that was built in the shape of a frog. It was called the Toad Inn, a drive-in, giant frog building. How could you miss it? God, I love that. So little tiny picture in the background is this frog building, all mud, flooded car. I knew that this was important, grabbed it for a dollar, scanned it in, did my research. Okay, it's the 1938 La Boca de Santa Monica flood. Now I know. Wow. Only a few months go by. 
And my publisher at Angel City Press says, hey, Eric, we're working on a book on La Boca de Santa Monica. Do you want to design this? Sure. I go through all of it and I went, I have a photograph <laughs> that could go in this book. And the author was like, yes, we have to use this photograph. So this little tiny thing that had no history whatsoever suddenly becomes a center page spread in a wow. history book. And we raise these things up and we give them importance and we celebrate them mm -hmm. because people with a certain eye know what they're looking at. They know, they know it's important. And maybe if you work with a publishing house, uh, you can celebrate it in another way and get it printed. But um, yeah, I was really happy to bring that forward. That's incredible. That's incredible. I I could sit down with you and talk with you for eight I more know. hours. You like, you have to come back at some point. We have to do. Yeah, we got to get the two of you. Yeah, because we need to talk old Hollywood. Also, sir. adorable how he's like snuck past the frame <laughs> to like get to different parts as uh, his little hurried little like ooh, adorable. Yes, yes, he's yeah. I think he's I think he's left the house. He may be going to get a coffee or something. Oh. I, we do this all the time because, like I said, we live in one room together. So mm -hmm. if he's on a call, I'm on a call. It's like, <laughs> take off. Oops. Got to yeah. go. Yeah. That's what my husband's yeah. gotten used to do with my, uh, we call him the Velociraptor toddler because he usually like stomps above us during an interview at some point. My toddler, <laughs> he's three and a half. He has been up since 530 today. That's when I got up today. God bless America. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Before we get into today's estate sale walkthrough, where can our listeners find all of the lovely things we've talked about with you today? Oh, that is tough. Uh, there, the, first and foremost, the Museum of Neon Art. The Museum of Neon Art is uh, can be found at neonmona.org. So that's neonmona.org, and we're located in Glendale, California, with a beautiful collection, small museum, huge collection of neon. And we celebrated as much as we possibly can on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, for the Knott's Berry Farm, you can basically walk into Knott's Berry Farm, point at a shelf, and probably pick out some of the things that I have done for Knott's Berry Farm <laughs> as a designer. But in order to buy that cookbook, or in order to buy the Knott's Preserved 100th Anniversary History Book, uh, those two books could be found at knots.com, and they have an online gift shop. Uh, for for mail order, so that cookbook which you need to have, and that history book which you need to have, I'm getting them. You, you can't find them on Amazon; they're only available at knots.com. Awesome, awesome. Well, I had fun writing this estate sale walkthrough today. I just uh, which means it's going to be really hard. Not super hard. I don't think it's super hard today. For those of you that are new to the show, the estate sale walkthrough is something that came to us in the first episode. We made it up, riffed it, and it's just become a part of the show. And it is an imaginary scenario of today we're going to be at the Rose Bowl flea market. So it is an imaginary made up thing. All the antiques and vintage are real and they're centered around the items I asked about in your questionnaire. We do this each week and the only catch is you can only pick one of the items. You are responsible for finding your own loophole. We will not <laughs> tell you how to do that. You can do it yourself. Okay. Each different scenario has a couple different items listed. Are we ready? Not really, but let's do it. So today, because Jill and I are in California for a neon tour, we also have to go to the Rose Bowl flea market because, duh, I mean, when in Rome, right? The first booth we come to is overflowing with a little bit of everything. We all know those booths where they just brought everything to the flea. And you really have to look at it all. Looking together towards the end of the table, tucked in under a couple of magazines, we find some Ziploc grab bags. 
but they're filled with vintage bar and casino freebies in advertising. Do you choose the bag of matchbooks or the bag of coasters? <clears throat> ooh, that's a good one. I would go for the matchbooks. What about you? Ooh, I think, ooh, coasters. I think I'm going to go matchbooks because I'm kind of obsessed with matchbooks right now. They look fantastic. Okay. Oh. <laughs> He just picked up five or six matchbooks and did a card. <laughs> and here, and we, go. here we go. Uh, five, six, seven, eight. And he starts throwing matchbooks <laughs> at the camera. That's perfect. The next booth we stop at has a great selection of lighting, but they're centered around your and Jill's favorite thing. Tiki. The first one is a pineapple TV light that has gorgeous amber glass details sent into each point of diamond. Now, remember, these are all real things. These exist. Next is a pair of rattan and bamboo lamps or a ceramic mermaid lamp with a fiberglass shade, also a TV lamp. Which do you pick? What era is that mermaid lamp? 50s. Oh. <laughs> I, I, already have, <clears throat> I already have uh, three. Wait, wait, wait. Right here? Mm -hmm. Right there. Oh, yeah, I see it. I see it. <laughs> I've got three of those pineapple lamps right now waiting to be in my tiki bar. Mm -hmm. I would probably lean towards the mermaid, the 1950s ceramic mermaid mm -hmm. one. That sounds intriguing to me. What about you? She's a beautiful teal color, too, sitting on a wave. <laughs> I am going to pick, um, it's between the mermaid and the pineapple because I love kitsch of all kinds. And I'm going to go with the mermaid for this one. It's tough. Oh, God. See, I wish I had um, my husband and two children, then I could have had my loophole. Mm, they're visiting with you. Oh, God. I think I'm going to go the pineapple. That's a good choice. It's on eBay. I'm obsessed with pineapple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's acceptable. You can't be. I mean, I have a tattoo of a pineapple, so it has to. Like, yeah, you have to have, have the to. pineapple. Okay. I, I will, I'm going to chime in. I, I have those little, the beautiful pineapples with the balls with the little light bulb oh, inside yes. the plastic cups. I, I have a couple of those in various colors, thanks to my husband, Darren, who went on eBay and went crazy. I'm, I'm not going to complain, but I'm still looking to find one of those pineapples if they ever made it in a purple ball, oh. because then it would be, would that be a boysenberry? <gasps> <laughs> we're going to, that's that. We're going to oh, add it to our eBay watch list us, now. That's on my list now. Oh, looking, man. I've looked at, there you go. Who's going to find it first? <laughs> Jill or Eric. <laughs> so this last question involves a little bit of time travel. And with help from our friends, Bill and Ted, we're going to borrow their phone booth. And we are going to head back. But before we go, we got to pick where we're going. We're traveling back to the grand opening of two iconic tiki bars. Do you choose to visit Don the Beachcombers opening night or Trader Vic's on their opening night? <clears throat> That is the hardest question ever. I I think that it, it, it would have to be Don the Beachcomber. Because that they're, the they're the original. They're the original. Uh, 1933. You know those lemon bars I told you I was I made and I was mm -hmm. going to give you some? I'm glad you didn't bring them over. I'm now. not bringing you any now. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. I, God, I, I love the early souvenir cups from Trader Vic's. And no. the different drink menu at Trader Vic's. I have but a also, cookbook. I have a drink book of Trader Vic's. Oh, I think I'm going to go Don the Beach. 
Yeah, I think we're going to go trade. to the original. Yeah. I'm going to go to Dawn's. Yeah, we got to do it. I'm sorry. I had to get one in there. How do you <laughs> how do you make somebody pick a fucking neon sign when they already have all of them? That was like the fender <laughs> questions I had to write for a fender historian. <laughs> like where do you Like I was I as in his questions I went, well, there's this fender watcher this that he goes, Well, I already have the watch and the matches, so I'll pick that. And I was like, Perfect. <laughs> of course you do. Of course you do. <laughs> You're, you you two are awesome. I thank you. Oh no, thank you. Oh, this so is great. Very much for sitting down with us today. This I've been looking forward to this interview since we booked it. Yeah, me too. And awesome. thank you for even if it was just the beginnings of those two things, the neon and knots. Uh, thank you for just creating a broader look when we, everybody's looking up and out at different stuff. I think that's marvelous. So glad, so glad. Well, it, I have to justify this whole thing somehow, right? Yeah, so. yes. Yeah, we'll bring it here. This is technically a tax write-off for you if you're <laughs> for it. So. This is a therapy session for me. <laughs> there you go. I'm the cheapest therapy you'll ever get as a hairdresser. We're just trained to boot. Well, and I'm a nurse, so you know you got a double. Yeah, Jill's our on-site medical, so we're good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, guys. To hear even more of the items we talk about today in Eric's episode, be sure to stick around for this week's Curio Corner. I was so thrilled when I love when we get referrals for guests because like with how the algorithm works and kind of the way we find people, it's kind of a stumble upon kind of thing sometimes. Sometimes it's people we've followed for a long time. Sometimes it's like, oh, this is really great. And so when we get referrals and we like flesh them out to be like, would they, do they fit? Do they have this? Which they always do. But I was, my brain took a couple of days to recover from the neon discoveries. I, well, I know, like, you know, like everybody knows a neon sign. Mm -hmm. Like everybody knows. We've all seen them. But the fact that they're still handmade, that's what really blew my mind. Mm -hmm. That and then that I was talking to somebody about it and I was uh, describing the different colors and how they get the different colors and how it's just painted differently. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? I, it was incredible. It was such a, <laughs> I was so, I was so grateful to spend, you know, the morning speaking with him. It was an early interview and we both got off the call and we both were just like, that was the best. I know. And it's, it's so nice when we have these kind of interviews because we never know what we're going to get. Mm -hmm. You know, we always go in with an open mind thinking, oh, and so far, every single interview, we get off every time. We're like, they're so nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so fun. It was yeah. just a nice high to ride for the rest of the day, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to like begin our week. Mm -hmm. I look forward to it every time. And then it was funny today. I had a, a client that I've had for a long time and she was. There's like certain people they tell about the show and certain people I don't because I know some people aren't ready for how many times I say fuck in real life. <laughs> and uh, this this sweetie client I've had, she's older and we were talking and it's this thing that's happening. I, it's a, it's a, a, a amalgamation of different stuff that's happened over the past week about the show. But she was asking, she was like, so what do you collect? And I just was like, I just rolled my eyes and I heard you in my head laughing. <laughs> and I said, well, it's kind of, it's lots of things. And I was talking about things and I was like, it's crazy how much we know now after almost a year mm -hmm. doing the show. And then I was getting tattooed and um, my tattoo artist brought it up in the room and the, there was another artist and a bunch of people. And so then we started talking about it. And this thing happens when you start talking about the show and what it's about, about the collections. Then everybody in the room starts sharing their yeah. collections. 
And it's my favorite thing to sit back like the the pitch was thrown and everybody starts talking about it. And I just get to sit back and listen. And I was like, man, this is cool. This And it happens at work too. And somebody, both of us will be like little snails. We're like, please don't. And we just go into our shells. But yeah. it's, it's cool because the same thing happens where people just start talking about what they collected, what their grandparents collected. It's so neat. Yeah. And like this, and it's so funny too, because a lot of these people with their collections, it will like remind me of like my childhood and I'll be like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. I totally remember that. And he brought up Knott's Berry Farm mm-hmm. and I was just like, holy shit, I totally like, and he was like listing the names of brides and like the food. And I'm like, I totally forgot all about that until he mentioned it, which was so crazy to me. Right. How we can just kind of glass over that. And it was, it's a really interesting, I wish we could have had, you know, like seven more hours to talk about the hash out the history of neon and Knott's Berry with him. I know. Like we could, I could have just sat there and just like, listen, like, oh, and then been like, oh, it's midnight. I should probably get home to the family. They're <laughs> missing me. Did you figure out the the blend of a boysenberry? I did. So this came off of um, a good old Wikipedia. So the boysenberry is a cross among a European raspberry, a European blackberry, and an American dewberry, as well as a loganberry. Oh. So I had four in there. What the hell? Yeah. So, and it's a large, so it, it says it like they can get up to like 0.28 of an ounce, which Whoa. I assume is pretty big for like berry. ping pong ball size. Yeah. Um, and it has large seeds and it's a deep maroon color. And so <laughs> growing up, I just assumed boysenberry was like a natural everyday thing for everybody. Right. Because we have we always had it. We always had boysenberry jam at home. <laughs> and then when I asked my husband, I was like, Have you ever had boysenberry jam? And he's like, Is that a real thing? And I'm like, Yes, it's a real thing. Why is why am I now just discovering nobody knows right. the deliciousness? Um so the exact origins aren't clear on the boysenberry, like he told us. Um, but the grower was Rudolph Boysen and he obtained a dewberry slash loganberry parent plant from a farm um, that was owned by a John Lubin. In the 1920s, George M. Darrow of the USDA began tracking down reports of a large reddish purple berry that that had been grown on Boysen's farm in Anaheim, California. Darrow enlisted the help of Walter Knott, another farmer who was known as a berry expert. Knott had never heard of a new berry, but he agreed to help Darrow in his search. Darrow and Knott learned that Boysen had abandoned his growing experiments several years earlier and sold his farm. Undaunted by the news, Darrow and Knott headed out to Boysen's old farm, on which they found several frail vines surviving in a field choked with weeds. They transplanted the vines to Knott's farm in Bueno Park, California, where he nurtured them back to a fruit-bearing health. Walter Knott was the first to commercially cultivate the berry in Southern California. Incredible. What are the odds, like the luck of finding the vines, these sad zombie vines? Well, and it's the fact that you also had to bring somebody who knew what they were looking for because any, like, buddy wandering around and be like, oh, it's a weed weed patch. (laughs) I can see you, Sam, going into him and be like, there she is, the last vine. 
pointing a like flashlight finger. Right there. <laughs> Boysenberry, a hoe. <laughs> yeah, probably. I had to do that thing with my mom at the garden the other night because she um, mowed down some of my seeds that she thought were weeds. And I just said to her, I said, do we need to do a, a lesson in first true leaves again, mother? Because she goes, did we plant sunflowers here? I said, we did. And it looks like they're all casualties. <laughs> And there was one left. And I said, look at he's traumatized. He's the only one left after you slaughtered his whole family, mom. <laughs> I had to go get a drink at my car after that. I bet I, I could just see your face. <laughs> just similar to this, what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And then I walked up a little bit because it's a big garden. I walked up and I went, did you weed right here? And she goes, she just like looks at me. She goes, I did. And I said, I'm glad I have more radish seeds. And she goes, oh, Samantha, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I just said, I'm going to go get a drink and I'll be back. <laughs> and I, I just sat there for a little bit. And she felt so bad. I felt bad, but I was just like, damn it, mom. Uh, anyways. Oh, yeah. God bless gardening. <laughs> and my mother. But was that all in the boys and Barry? That's such an interesting they Thing. have like, I mean, there's a lot. It's got there's a rich a berry history. It's got a, it does for, an, I mean, it is a brand new berry. Is that, hold the phone, redial, call an operator. Is that where mixed berry flavoring comes from? Oh, because I'm pretty sure. I'm going to say it is. I'm going to say it is. Well, I was, as you were reading that about like the time that they were finding this, what the, another interesting part of Los Angeles history we talked about was the Orpheum Theater. And mm-hmm. I think that it was around the same time that, I mean, Los Angeles was obviously flourishing, but it was in the, um, we talked about the Orpheum Theater and it was one of the first things I saw on that tour. And the reason why they pointed it out is because it was Beaux-Arts architecture. And that's B-E-A-U-X, Beaux-Arts. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of buildings in Los Angeles that resemble that. Um, this also comes from Wikipedia because the other article I found was a scroll of a history. novel, but it was interesting. <laughs> it felt this gets the bullet points of the Orpheum theater because it has a really rich history. It was built in downtown Los Angeles in the early twenties and opened in on February 15th of 1926. And it was the fourth and final Los Angeles venue for the Orpheum vaudeville circus in the va- or circuit, excuse me, the Orpheum vaudeville circuit performed like two to three shows a day and it was reserved seating. So it was a big, I mean, vaudeville was huge at the time and everybody went to the theater to see a show and the Orpheum was the place to be. And after a $3 million renovation that started in 1989, it is the most restored historical movie place in the city. There were three theaters before this final Orpheum theater, but they kept building bigger ones and kind of moving and different things were happening. It was designed by architect Albert Landsberg, G. Albert Landsberg, and it has a mighty Wurlitzer organ installed in 1928 that's still in the building. It is one of the three pipe organs remaining in Southern California. Wait a minute. Three? One of the three in all of Southern California. Hold on. Right? So the first site for the Orpheum Circuit was the Grand Opera House, also known as the Grand Theater on Main Street. The second was uh, the Lyceum Theater at 227 Spring Street. That one opened in 1888, closed in 1941. The previous one opened in 1844, closed in 1937. And the third and final Orpheum Theater, now known as the Palace Theater, is at 630 Broadway, which is downtown. 
And after it was opened, it was very popular for a burlesque queen, Sally Rand. The Marx Brothers performed there, Will Rogers. Judy Garland performed there singing with her family as Frances Baby Gum. Because she, Judy Garland, traveled with her three sisters before she became Judy Garland at the age of 14. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, they traveled as a singing trio. And they were performing, I believe... In Los Angeles, and a talent agent saw Judy and went outside and was like, hey, there's this girl performing here. I think that she would be a great star. She has a really tragic history that I didn't realize. I got on oh. Judy Garland TikTok the other day. Yes, I, I, I know after her becoming a star. I didn't know that before. Yeah. So. And then comedian Jack Benny. And then there was jazz people, of course, Lena Horne, Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, and other vaudeville acts as late as the 1950s. In the 60s, the theater started to hold concerts like Little Richard, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder. Um, and the restored Orpheum Theater is now a venue for live concerts, movie premieres, and location shoots. Which when I was on that tour, they had a sign, the marquee said, for shooting call, like to use the venue. Oh. And then I thought this was interesting. So it has a list of all of the location shoots that have happened recently. So um, there is America's Got Talent. The Apprentice season five, blech. RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, the finale, seven, eight, and eleven season. Pretty Little Liars, Angel series. Remember that, Jill? Yes. Glee, and then film is Last Action Hero, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, A Mighty Wind, Transformers, oh, Alvin and the oh. Chipmunks, In Search of a Midnight Kiss, The Shape of Water, and Hop, and music videos, Akon Lonely. Really? (laughs) Avril Lavigne, I'm with you. The Backstreet Boys, Shape of My Heart. Kelly Rowland, Can't Nobody. Guns N' Roses, November Rain. Brandy Carlisle, The Story. And Taylor Swift, Mean. Isn't that... And the Orpheum Theater, so there's Orpheum Theaters that are like all over the country, right? Mm -hmm. And they are named after Greek mythology of Orpheus and Eurydice. So for the brief touch on that is Orpheus had an incredible way with music, right? Everybody was always enchanted by it. It was his thing. Everybody loved it. Well, something happened and Eurydice was pulled into the underworld and he needed to get down there to save the love of his life. And he went down, had his music, was able to wow the guards at the gates of hell, Cerberus and his friend. And they <laughs> he went in and he found Eurydice and then she vanished forever and he never recovered. And so that's kind of where the Orpheum theaters across the country get their origin, which makes sense, obviously. But it is really, um, I have to throw some pictures up online of the Orpheum theater for this one, because it really is, I mean, you look at it and it's such a juxtaposition to the city of Los Angeles to see this old Bozar building mm-hmm. in there. I should probably include what Bozar is, because when I learned it, it became one of those like... Uh, <laughs> Things where I was like, oh, yeah, that's Bozar. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like you're doing right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's uh, it started in the 1830s to the end of the 19th century. This is also from Wikipedia and thoughtco.com. So the characteristics of Bozar is characterized by order, symmetry, formal design, grandiosity, and elaborate ornamentation. So it includes balustrades, balconies, columns, cornices, pilasters. Like they're really, they kind of model themselves after like Roman type buildings. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can generally tell a Bozar building by like the first set will be like arches or columns or um, 
like big thing and then it'll be separated by like a border and then you'll have pillars and then there'll be another border and then you'll have the uh, more ornamentation and then it's usually a flat roof line um the way the lady described it on that tour was so to the point so it's um it was dependent on sculptural decoration and it was along conservative modern lines, right? Because this is the 1830s, the early 19th century. And it based a lot of its styling in French and Italian Baroque and then Rococo stuff also. So there was like bigger details, bold sculptural supporting stuff, the cornices, the swag. And it is characterized by a, usually a flat roof, rusticated and raised first story, a hierarchy of spaces from noble spaces like grand entrances and staircases, arched windows, arched and pedimented doors um it will also have references of like manners and ecleticism symmetry is a big thing there's also lots of statues involved i mean think roman and greek paris yeah they're just super ornate mm -hmm. and just like it's because <laughs> we i i've been to a couple buildings like this the theaters and stuff and mm -hmm. it's so hard to pay attention to what's going on because you just want to look at everything. Yeah. Cause there's so much hidden inside of it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's uh, and then when you, there's so much bazaar in downtown Los Angeles too. There's yeah. so much. Yeah. But anyways, that's the Orpheum theater and it's humble beginnings and it's still a very popular venue to this day, which is, it says something about, I think that area, especially in LA, like they want to hold on to that. Mm -hmm. because it's almost i mean that's the beginning of everything yeah, really really the dawn of the entertainment industry yeah mm -hmm. but another thing we talked on just and we kind of just touched on it was disneyland again my childhood mm -hmm. <laughs> i've never been it's on my list oh, i know there's so many people i know that's never been i'm like i'll take you i'll be your tour guide yes i'm waiting for my son to get old enough so we can go in october Yes, October is a perfect time to go mm -hmm. to either Disneyland or Disney World. Because it's but one, spooky. It's spooky. Mm -hmm. And it's like the best time of the year to go for those. And one of the best rides, in my opinion, <laughs> is the Haunted Mansion. Um, and the Haunted Mansion, so this article comes from DisneyParks.Disney.Go um, on August 9th. 1969, the doors of the Haunted Mansion first creaked open to a ghoulish ghosts and guests looking for an unlivable home. Today, all foolish mortals are able to visit this spirited attraction in New Orleans Square at Disneyland Park. The Haunted Mansion at Disneyland was the first major Disney attraction to open without the direct supervision of Walt Disney. Although Walt reviewed many early concepts and vignettes, he never saw the completed show. Construction of the Haunted Mansion attraction began in 1961, and the exterior of the attraction was completed in 1963. It was unoccupied until 1969, while Walt Disney participated in the 1964-65 New York World's Fair, and his Imagineers were retasked to work those timely projects. The World's Fair experience made way made way for some of the technology that's used in the Haunted Mansion. Oh, because he learned it while they were at the World's Fair? While they were there, yeah. Oh. 
Um, during the period before the attraction opened, a tantalizing witty sign was displayed outside the haunted mansion, which read, Notice, all ghosts and restless spirits. Post-lifetime leases are now available in this haunted mansion. <laughs> For reservations, send resume and past experiences to Ghost Relations Department, Disneyland. Please do not apply in person. I love that. It's so like the, all the little things are just so witty like that. And it's part of the charm. Mm -hmm. But so as you enter the Haunted Mansion, you're taken into the portrait chamber featuring some of the ghosts in their uh, corporal, like in their mortal state. So you just see these pictures of these, like what you think is normal pictures. Then suddenly the chamber begins to stretch. And once you stop, you are led into a hallway filled with eerie lighting and transforming portrait portraits. Shortly thereafter, as you enter your doom buggy, <laughs> the ghost host greets you and prepares, you, prepares to take you on your haunting journey. Your tour of the mansion offers ghastly gimps into the afterlife, including a seance conducted by Madame Leota. A ghastly party in the Grand Hall, complete with dancing and the birthday cake, followed by a trip up to the abode's attic where a far-from-blushing bride and a hat-box ghost reside, all before ending up in the graveyard where the ghosts of the haunted mansion have gathered for a swinging wake. Um, yeah, and like I remember as a kid, you're just like blown away by it because it looks like ghosts really dancing and... Uh. You, they're talking to you and yeah it's just it's just one of those timeless rides that can never go away so is it, it's not like a jump scare ride right like no no oh. you are in this thing and it just takes you on and it's just like you're showing the life of a ghost and what they do and how they party wait. and i can't wait it, it's so fun and like I said, October is the best part, best time of the year, I think, to go to either park because it's so decorated in Halloween mm -hmm. that Which it is, just it's what it's just another one of those things where it's hard to see everything because you just want to sit and stare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I one year we used to do uh, decorating a Christmas tree for uh, the Festival of Trees, and mm -hmm. one year we did a Nightmare Before Christmas tree. We did this at the salon. And we like filled it with Nightmare Before Christmas stuff. And I used some imagery from the park to make the big long scroll that falls oh, yeah. down. And that came down the tree. I think that our tree was auctioned off. I don't think anybody bought it right off the bat. They they didn't get it. But it was very fun. Halloween's my forever favorite. This is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that is everything. You know, there's lots of other stuff that we want to get into with Eric and with his partner and his husband and all that stuff. So we're like, we're going to save that for hopefully a, a round two and get into a little bit more of their lives as collectors. And I mean, we were just, it was the best. It was, it was just so, it was so, I don't know. It's just what I needed. Mm -hmm. It just gave you that feel good feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And be sure to check out all of his wonderful stuff. We of course will have all of that linked in our Instagram post today for Eric, be sure to check out the Knott's Berry Farm cookbook. We got to get that for Jill, the Museum of Neon Art in Los Angeles. And if you're local, please go take a tour of them because that just sounds phenomenal. Phenomenal. Be sure to follow along with us everywhere on social media at the Mothball Prophecies original. You'll see Jill and I's face in our profile picture from our cover art. 
like and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people know that the show is worth listening to. Please share it with your friends and family. Right now, we want to get into thanking our patrons this week. To see all the tiers for our Patreon, you can visit the link in our bio. Thanks to these guys, we're able to offer great things to the entire Mothball universe. So we want to take this time to thank them. And I really hope that they know how much we appreciate each and every one of them. Um, We have Cocktail Cower coming up. And I look forward to that every Sunday to hang out with those guys and see how their lives are going and building those relationships there. I know. It's so fun to talk vintage and swap stories. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's It's incredible. It's fun. So we want to take this time to thank Emily in Nevada. Aaron in Wisconsin. RJ in Florida. Crystal in Nevada. Gina in South Carolina. Julia in Sweden. Jasmine in Kentucky. Kyla in Indiana. Shanna, Mandy, and Riley in California, Aaron, TC Liono, Melissa, Christina, Erica, Becky, and Ashley in Idaho. Thank you all so much for joining us for this week's Prophecy. We hope you find some good shit. And I hope you remember to look under the tables. Exactly. Bye! Yeah.